You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 102. Today we're asking the question, what is the right strategy when we can't manage safety as well as we'd like to? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven. I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So, Drew, this question, you know, what's the right strategy when we can't manage safety as well as we'd like to? Surely that must be uh, being asked in lots of organisations. So, should we dive straight in? Would you like to introduce the paper we're discussing, and then we can get straight into it? Sure. I think the paper does a pretty good job of introducing the topic itself. So let's just introduce the paper itself. Uh, the authors this time are Rene Amalberti and Charles Vincent. Regular listeners should be familiar with the name Amalberti. We talked about him on episode 85, where we discussed his famous paper, The Paradoxes of Almost Totally Safe Transportation Systems. Uh, and Charles Vincent uh, I haven't read much of his work, but he is a big figure in clinical and patient safety. So he's currently professor of psychology at Oxford, uh, but for many years he was director of an NIH research centre for patient safety and clinical improvement at Imperial University in London. So two giants of authors of this paper. Uh, the title is Managing Risk in Hazardous Conditions – Improvisation is not enough. Uh, it's published in 2019, uh, a date that's going to show interesting once we get further into this paper, in the British Medical Journal Quality and Safety. So very reputable journal. Uh, the paper, though I should note, is labelled as a viewpoint paper. So this isn't representing original research or even literature review. The paper's basically an essay presenting opinions or talking about controversial issues. As best I can tell, though, they still actually peer review the paper. So any time that it's, uh, for example, referencing to other research, you should consider that to be of reasonably high quality. Yeah, thanks, Drew. And, and I guess that's why I spent a little bit of time on the authors, because we don't have, you know, a viewpoint paper is a, I guess it's a nice way to, to describe it. And, and so, and there are some interesting questions here that we'll ask because we'll talk about the intersection of safety one and safety two, and we'll talk about the intersection of, I guess, absolute safety and best possible safety at a point in time. So the real tensions that are described in this, in this paper that are real for, for many organizations. And I guess, Drew, lots of industries and systems are becoming ever complex and under increased pressure. And I guess this paper sets out that, you know, I think the opening sentence is something like, Healthcare systems are at a stress level like never before. And this paper was submitted in February 2019. And oh, if these authors knew what was to come in 12 months in terms of the, in terms of the healthcare system and, and obviously COVID. So any thoughts about, you know, a system is always more stressed than it ever has been before until the next stressor comes along. David, we're not a political podcast, but this is raising questions of which was worth at COVID or 10 years of Tory government. <laughs> but I think, think that that's a genuine question you ask, and that's one of the sort of points they put forward in this paper, is we can't just, you know, say things are bad now, we've got to wait till we get better, because things often never do get better. We're often under stress for 
years or careers. <laughs> it's not like we're just in a temporary state of, oh, we just have to be stressed at the moment. You know, we'll wait till we've got some more time and then we'll worry about safety. Yeah, I fall into that personal trap, Drew, of going, oh, I'll just be busy for another couple of months and then not busy anymore. So I think it's a good, it's a good uh, reflection for professionals and organisations to go, oh, okay, what if the current state of stress is the new normal or what if things become more stressed is uh, what we're doing now the right thing to be doing and, and that's the, the centre of this paper. So, Drew, sort of talk about, look, it is healthcare-centric, obviously, this paper. It's in the BMJ Quality Safety Journal. But we'll try and sort of extrapolate out to other industries as well. But specifically in relation to healthcare, the authors sort of say, look, there's there's a lot of new and serious hazards for patients and there's a lot going on in hospitals. Again, this was before COVID, you know, in terms of patient volumes, the complexity of health conditions, the reduced or, or shortfalls in staffing. And it men, means that the overall quality of care falls short of the standard expected by both patients and professionals. So it's like given the situation in the healthcare sector, the standard of care that uh, patients expect and the standard of care that professionals expect to provide is not able to be achieved. Yeah. And, and I think this is a question that comes up for a lot of people. Actually, David, it was the same day that you had sent me this paper to get ready for the episode. And I got an email from a healthcare safety professional asking, you know, almost that exact same question. What do you do as an organization when you've got this standard of care that you know you aspire to achieve? But right now, the job involves shortcuts and workarounds and all the things that your safety management system says are bad for safety. And you know you just can't like snap your fingers and go back to safe. And you can't say, well, okay, if we can't keep safe, well, then we've got to go out of business because you're a hospital. You know, your whole business is saving lives that aren't going to be saved if you're not there providing the care, even if you're not providing the care as well as you want to. Yeah, and so Drew, it's this idea that this is the aspiration of care in the hospital setting. And if we take it outside of that setting, it's like this aspiration that companies have of zero injuries or, or zero harm. It's like, we know we're not there yet. Our organisation is under a lot of pressure. We've got to keep producing. What's the best thing to do now? Is it to continue to try to manage as if we're at this this uh, this aspirational state, or is there a different sort of approach that that could be more effectively taken in that in that moment? Yeah, and David, I think it goes sort of like beyond the zero harm argument because I mean you could be experiencing a low rate of injuries. And still be telling yourself, okay, yes, we've got you know, some injuries occurring. It's not perfect, but we're very satisfied with what we're doing to prevent injuries. We're very satisfied that our systems are working well. We're following the systems. This paper sort of asks the question, what happens when you're not even at that state? You know, when you can't say, you know, we had the injuries despite doing everything we could, but you know you're not doing everything you can. You just don't have enough time, don't have enough resource to do even the things that you know are the next things you need to do in order to improve. Yeah, good clarification, Drew. Um, so this paper goes on to talk about what they describe the section as the evolution of poor performance. And it's introduced that teams and organizations, I mean, we wouldn't, we, most of our listeners, I, I guess, would understand this, that, that teams and organizations constantly have to adapt in times of increased demand, increased, increased pressures. And these adaptations are usually improvised and they can vary widely depending on the team and who's in charge. So in the healthcare setting, what happens when we're above the capacity of the beds? What happens when we don't have enough people on shift? What so so in these situations, local teams need to adapt to try to figure out how to keep the the system doing what it 
what it needs to deliver. And these improvisations can vary. So, so different teams will will deal with these with these um, pressures in different ways. And I guess the the paper sort of says that in the short term, teams figure out how to adapt and cope with these problems for a few hours, a few shifts, a few weeks, and and with the expectation that things will become easier. However, if the pressures continue, then the paper sort of talks about the deterioration in in working conditions and deviation from practices and what we might talk about, Drew, in, in safety sciences, you know, this drift into failure could start to become a sustained adaptation to to formal or informal working working practices. Yeah, David, I think it's sometimes we forget when we hear terms like normalisation of deviance from Diane Vaughan, that you know, those terms, uh, normalisation of deviance, drift into failure, they sound like people just being slack. And I, I, I think we sometimes sort of forget that the drift isn't just like, you know, accidental, I just don't care one day and then I just start constantly working badly. It's you under pressure people work around, under pressure people adapt, and then that pressure stays. And so the changed conditions stay. Um, and eventually those changed conditions just become the way we do work, which is not the way we originally wanted to do work, but it's just the way things are done now. And there's some research that even says that, you know, even if the pressures don't continue, once you've sort of like pushed into that new pattern, that new pattern is just the normal. You've lost the previous high standard forever until someone actually, you know, finds some way to pull you back. You don't just bounce back once the pressure's gone. Yeah, and I think that's that's a great point about not just, you know, bouncing back. Uh, and there's the paper cites a review of 58 studies from eight countries uh, that found that in the healthcare sector that found that workarounds were common in all settings studied. So essentially 58 studies, eight countries, workarounds are present in all settings. So that's a fairly absolute conclusion drew from that research, that literature review. And I guess the conclusion was while these workarounds may aid short-term productivity, like getting over these short-term pressures and tension, the study studies found that they do actually pose a variety of threats to the patient. So this idea that teams will adapt when they need to, isn't without risk and unintended consequence, which is why we talk sometimes about this need for guided adaptability, not just not just adapt because we need to adapt in a way that maintains safety and appears that that's not actually the way that these adaptations occur. They, they talk about threats to patients here, but I think it's also threats to staff members in, in a couple of ways. This isn't an original thought of mine, and I apologise if the person who gave it to me is our listener because I've just forgotten who I heard this from. But they were talking about how the way we sort of get resilience as an organization in times of stress is we rely on individuals to be resilient. And, and so we're getting that sort of like extra adaptive capacity that the organization needs by burning out the people. Because you, what's the easiest way for an organization to get extra capacity? It's not to hire an extra person. It's for the people who are there to work harder and longer. And what's the way to get flexibility? It's for people to be, do things outside their job description to help each other out. But when they do that for more than just you know, a short period of time, it just burns everyone out. And so that's you know a direct physical harm to people to have that. But there's also the moral injury when people are in a caring profession and they can't provide the standard of care that they know is or believe to be the right standard. So you know these, these people suffer because they can see the adverse consequences to the patients but they just don't have the capacity to give those patients a higher standard, more attention. Yeah, and Drew, I, I would mind just reading a paragraph out from this paper because I think it sort of gives a sense of this idea that maybe things aren't 
aren't actually going to get better in, in many organizations and it frames the rest of the paper. So Quote says, yeah, in, and this is this is a quote, uh, and, and a cited quote, in the last round, which was 2014 to 2018, of mandatory French hospital certification, reviewers found one or more areas of substandard care in over 60% of 2,218 French hospitals. Poorly performing hospitals are given three to 12 months to resolve these problems. However, in practice, for a variety of reasons, more than 10% of all French hospitals were unable to return to an acceptable standard within a year. In France, as in other countries, plans are put in place to deal with poor performance, but sustained improvement may take years to achieve. Services, therefore, continue to run in an unsafe mode with local adaptations and fixtures, but seldom with any planned attempt to manage the ongoing risk. So, Drew, my conclusion from, from this is that, you know, at any point in time, and, 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 I, and I assume that French healthcare would be no different to other healthcare and many other industries, that even when we find problems in, in two-thirds of all of our activities, over a 12-month period, there's still a significant portion of things that we've been unable to fix, unable to resolve, even to an acceptable standard. Yeah, it's, it's one thing when an audit tells you that that sign needs to be positioned three inches higher. You know, someone can come along, move the sign, hammer it back in, and you've fixed up the problem. But when audit, an audit tells you you have a deficient management system, you don't fix a management system just by rewriting a document. You don't you consistently improve all of your safety investigations just by writing a new procedure for investigations. And the organization's going to be operating below the standard you want. It takes a long time to fix some of these things. And that assumes that you've got the spare capacity and the resources to put into improvement rather than just you're using up all your capacity just to run things as they're being run now. Yeah, so so I guess Drew, that's and this challenge of, you know, there's a lot of effort that goes into improving safety activities and that can draw on the same resources that go into delivering the primary functions of the organisation and, and imposing a kind of another goal conflict or trade-off in those operational teams, which is if they've already got this adaptation, this frontline workaround, then where are they? They're already working beyond capacity. Where are they going to find the resources to you know, address some of these more systemic issues. And I think that that goes to the heart of the paper, Drew, as well. So this next section, Drew, are you ready to go to the next section? Should we go on? Yeah, so let's go on to the next section. And our, our readers may remember from the Amalberti episode, immediately followed by the Rasmussen episode, that Amalberti is a bit of a fan of Rasmussen and pretty much can't explain anything in safety without drawing upon Rasmussen's work. And so that's exactly what he does here. He, gave, he sort of leaps into this with a brief reminder of what we talked about in episode 86, Rasmussen's paper on risk management in a dynamic society. And in particular, the bit he sort of represents is there's no like perfect frozen state of safety. Safety is all about anticipation and adjustment to manage risks. And so that's what he's really talking about is this dynamic process, but... If you just do that in the short term, that's not going to fix things in the longer term. So dynamic adjustment might explain how people handle crises, but how do they handle long periods? And that, that's where the sort of title, you know, innovation is not enough. He doesn't believe that this short-term adaptability of people can solve the problem of systemic under-resourcing or systemically falling below standards. So he sort of tries to then set out a more more practical sort of like framework for how you operate in these conditions. David, do you want to sort of take us through the different strategies? The, yeah, look, I think I might just share a little bit more about 
this idea of improvisation is not enough and and because this this paper is actually talked specifically about safety too and i think he Alberti and Vincent, they sort of go on and say that uh, you know this is a dynamic problem, and safety two sort of suggests that in high risk industries we need the um, ingenuity and adaptability of people to basically fix the problems in the system. And he actually a little they throw a few shots over the bow at maybe some of these other authors. To say, <laughs> <laughs> we've got these. Oh, elegant- I, I think, think I can see the quote you're thinking about here, David. Well, it says, look, we, we, we may have many elegant descriptions of the resourcefulness, the ingenuity of human beings in coping with hazard and coping with crisis. And however, while we have these descriptions of success, we, we have little, none of these authors sort of share how often these improvised solutions have been, you know, successful versus unsuccessful and that these Short-term fixes, they're, they're adaptive. Uh, they impede the development of longer-term solutions. They can add risk to the system by creating new processes that are not known to managers and they're not known to other members of the team. They can add additional steps into a process. And in the longer term, kind of like normalize, like you said earlier, normalize these deviations from standard practice. And I guess most importantly to these authors, the existing literature on on safety two offers kind of little guidance as to how we might best prepare and support people in and organizations to manage these expected pressures and crises. So it feels like the that Alberti and Vincent are coming a little bit at this literature like maybe like Nancy Levinson came into this literature when when she talked about safety three. Yeah, it's almost like he's saying, you know, stop stop telling me about resilience. Stop telling me about adaptive capacity. Tell me how we actually do that stuff. And also, we'll talk about these principles soon. Tell me how we manage the things that we know are there, not necessarily um, start to pre- prepare for these imaginary things that might happen. So if we've got all these pressures and tensions and goal conflicts and trade-offs in our system, tell us how we're going to manage those specifically, not necessarily um, how we might manage some potential future thing. And we know it's always going to be both, but I think this paper is trying to refocus where the organization's effort and attention is directed. So, Drew, they, the authors outlined four principles. Maybe I'll, I'll mention each of these briefly and then just ask you for a comment on each if you're happy with that. Okay, sounds good. The first principle they talk about would be to, we must give up hope of waiting for things to return to normal. So we can continue to innovate and improve our system. However, we should face the fact that unsafe practices, risks, pressures, tensions, dangerous conditions are always going to be present in our operations and there's not there's no real point in hoping for things to end up in this nice, perfect, stable, normal operational space. I don't know that I've got a comment to make on that one, David. <laughs> okay. I think that's just a, that's, a that, that's almost like a framing device. <laughs> All right. So we framed it like that. So secondly, the second principle they say is we is accept that we can never eliminate all risks and hazards. So that there's nothing wrong with eliminating risks where this is feasible and, and, and possible. And we need to balance these preventative actions with a wider portfolio safety strategy that is explicitly aimed at managing dynamic threat, threats and pressures. Yes. So, so I like this idea that we tend to set safety up almost as a standard of perfection that we, I guess we don't expect people to achieve it all the time, but we expect those deviations to be rare and correctable. And I think what Amelberti is hinting at here is that if we set that standard too high, then failure to meet it is routine. And that's a problem because once people know that they're below the standard, they don't know what is genuinely acceptable. 
And that's always the problem with very ambitious goals is sure you can say that they're aspirational, but then it doesn't tell you what the bottom line is. If you're not actually expected to meet the rule, what rules are you expected to follow? And I think we're just setting people up for failure when we create these rules that people can't follow. It's not fair to force someone into a trade-off where they've got to decide either follow the rule or get the job done. And we expect them to do both. But, and Amalberti is going to sort of touch on this as we go, I think it is reasonable for the people who do set the rules to actually make those trade-offs. And rather than writing aspirational rules, they should actually decide, okay, what genuinely is acceptable and achievable given the resources that we have. Yeah, it's a great point, Drew. So the third principle following that, that uh, they talked about is that um, our principal focus should be on expected problems and hazards, uh, what I sort of alluded to earlier. So even though the existing literature um, on adaptation focuses on the management of surprises and unexpected problems, there's a lot of things that we know about. So in this hospital setting, the pressures on beds, staffing, equipment, sick patients, you know, these things aren't unexpected. We know that they'll happen. They're entirely familiar. And these situations are quite different from sudden, unexpected and unusual crises that are the focus of much of the literature. So if there's things that we know could challenge our, our operational systems, resources, performance, then we should invest in the capabilities and strategies to, to deal with those. David, I don't know about you, but I was reminded of Griffith's rules for when you can ask for an extension on an assignment. You're not allowed to, if you're a part-time student, you're not allowed to just say, Oh, I was busy at work because we know that people who have jobs are going to be busy at work. You might not know exactly when you're going to be busy or how you're going to be busy, but you do know that if you're trying to mix work and study, there are times when you're going to be busy. And Amalberti is sort of saying that we've got these, you could sort of call them like predictable surprises or certain uncertainties. You know, things that we don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but we do know that we're regularly going to face these types of things. So we can plan ahead for them and we can have ideas in advance about what we're going to do when we're in these things. You know, they shouldn't be unexpected crises. And the other thing he's sort of like aiming at there is this is really quite different from the sort of abstract resilience where you just have random capacity for unknown things. And it's also different from the like very explicit hazard management that we do where we've got very precise known events that we put controls around. This is anticipation of things that are reasonably expectable to be happened because they've happened before, they'll happen again. And we're not trying to prevent them. We're not trying to control them. We're trying to be ready to deal with them. Yeah, Drew, it's like the unknown knowns. They're the things that we understand, but we're not necessarily aware of when they will, they will present. So, but, but having strategies is, is a sensible thing to do. And then finally, the fourth principle, we must acknowledge from the start that the management of risk when an entire unit or an organization is stressed requires engagement and action at all managerial levels. So negotiating new priorities and strategies in a stressed organization requires coordinated action between executives, middle management, frontline staff. You know, it's this idea we can't just, well, we can't just let these pressures hit the front line and expect the frontline to adapt and absorb and manage these pressures. These pressures and tensions in the organization need to be understood, managed, responded to at all at all levels of the business. And I think this is particularly true in healthcare where maybe this paper was highlighting that a lot of these pressures that that are placed in, say, a hospital healthcare setting are expected to be dealt with, you know, by the staff on the ward 
as opposed to by the organization. Thanks for that explanation, David, because I, I was actually sort of struggling to interpret this point. It, it sounded to me a little bit like, you know, a motherhood statement. Your management of risk needs to involve people at all levels. Um, we need to communicate well. We need comprehensive training. But yeah, if you position it, as, if the alternative to that is just trust the front line to adapt, then I think this is actually very clear. And it and it's particularly then applies to this these goal conflicts. That you know, goal conflicts can't be something that you just continually delegate until they hit someone who can no longer delegate it. Sometimes people higher in the organization need to make the decision about the trade-off and yeah. need to say, right, okay, this is what we're going to sacrifice. This is what we're going to prioritize. And then other people could just follow that instruction instead of being left to reconcile impossible demands. Yeah. And so, Drew, this, this paper then goes on from that statement about all levels and those four principles to talk about what would training for managing organizational threats look like uh, at these three levels. Now, there was a few examples from other industries that I don't think we'll talk about, Drew, because I wasn't particularly, in, well, wasn't overly impressed by some of those examples that were presented. But in terms of this description of what training might look like, the author suggested at the executive level, there should be a, you know, a focus on how management sort of negotiate between these competing priorities, like particularly safety and other objectives in both the short and the longer term. So the executives cannot and should not simply just say safety is the most important over other dom domains. And they sort of call out that this is kind of a naive approach, which is often made. And that short-term impact on safety margins in response to other pressures can be accepted, but only if they're actively managed. So this sort of talks about maybe developing senior executives in an organization to have a far more deeply understood uh, decision, discussion, decision around trade-off, short-term trade-off, long-term trade-offs, where safety risk is being borrowed from for financial performance, how to provide additional resources and controls around those risks, and rather than just say, do this and make sure that you always do it safely. David, I just want to repeat that quote because I think it is both heresy and absolutely true. But this paper literally says a short-term impact on safety margins in response to financial pressures can be accepted. And of course it can, of course it is. But if we deny that, then we're never going to actively manage it or communicate it. And that's what the problem is, is that we implicitly understand that there's going to be an impact on safety, but we don't clearly say to the organization, look, we are accepting this extra risk. And this is how we're going to accept it. And these are the limits of the extra risk that we're going to accept. Yeah, Andrew, at a point in my career, I was instructed in response to financial pressures on the organization to reduce safety staff and costs by 60% and to ensure that there was no increase in safety risk to the organization as to absolute statements. Well, that would be great if 60% of your staff were currently having no impact on safety. Not so good if any of them were doing any work at all. Well, that's a good point. Oh, enough said. And however, so at middle managers, you know, this is where the, the, I guess this, this, this is sometimes referred to as the clay layer in organizations, I guess, where the trans, transition happens between the senior and the frontline, senior management and the frontline in both directions. And I guess this paper says that middle managers need to act as mediators or buffers between the frontline and the executive exactly as that. They need to have a good sense of the real conditions on the front line, so a real finger on the pulse of work as done. And they need to have this portfolio of possible interventions that can be deployed at times of high workload or other pressures. So this is this, if we've got, you know, 
and expected expected pressures that can arise, we need to have a portfolio of interventions. And I guess for them as middle managers, a critical task for them is to be clear about what standards are absolute. So in healthcare, they talk about hand washing. So no matter how much pressure gets into the system, we're not really going to tell frontline people that they no longer it's acceptable now for them to no longer wash their hands, but which can be relaxed. And the example they give here is like the timing and frequency of observations of vital signs. So maybe I can't get to that patient to check their vitals every 30 minutes and maybe 45 or 50 minutes is is okay when we're still triaging people in, in A&E. So this is an explicit managed adjustment to the, to the pressures that's kind of like this is infinitely preferable to this general degradation of standards. So what we're saying is if you are going to have a degradation of standards, at least choose the ones that you are okay to degrade and which ones you're not. David, you, you've actually spent more time in railways than I am, so correct me if I'm getting the explanation of this wrong. Um, but this this struck me exactly as the way railways handle degraded operations. In that, you know, ideally we'd want every time all of our signals aren't working or something like that, we would want to shut down the railway. But we can't do that. So instead, they've got very clear rules and expectations about how you go. You tell everyone we are now operating in degraded mode. And all the drivers know what that means. That means that, you know, you come to a signal, you stop for a certain amount of time, you proceed at a certain speed. If you have visibility, you're allowed to go up to a certain speed. If you don't have visibility, you've got to go down to a particular speed. So even though it's less safe than normal, and everyone knows it's less safe than normal, and there's a higher chance of accidents, but it's it's not open slather. People still have rules and expectations that they're supposed to follow in that degraded mode. They don't just like decide for themselves, oh, things aren't working, I'll do what I can. Everyone's still operating under a set of very clear expectations that can't degrade further. Yeah, and Andrew, I think there's an acceptance that, you know, all operations operate in a degraded state. I mean nothing nothing's ever as perfect as they were when they were, you know, first built or first designed. And so we've got this um we've and I, I, go, I went to aircraft here because there's an MEL, a minimum equipment list in aircraft. And so it's always assuming that certain equipment on the aircraft isn't quite right. You know, an instrument will be out or something won't be there, but there's this minimum equipment list. And it's kind of going, well, you can deal, you can do without this particular function. You can do without this particular piece of equipment, but here's the list that you can't sort of do without. And I guess that's what this paper's kind of saying. You know, if your businesses are under pressure, under resource constraint, we know that teams are going to adapt. We know that shortcuts are going to be taken. We know that standards are going to drop. Tell, be, be honest with yourselves in your organization, particularly middle management in this state and work with your people to be clear on which standards actually can't slip and which, you know, which can, you know, either for a short period of time or, or for a long period of time. Yeah, and, and if you're in an industry that's not so high tech, if, if something like construction, you could think of this in terms of, the more golden rules you have, the less they're really golden rules and more just aspirations. But you can have the aspirations by all means. You have these things we would like to achieve. This is the standard of safety we want. And then also have this like lower set that, you know, no matter what, these are the things that we never, ever break, even when we don't have enough time and attention to do the other things. Yeah. So Drew's this idea that if everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. Um, particularly if you throw all of those things at a, at a resource constrained constrained system. So they did go on to talk about at the frontline level, you know, and particularly frontline leadership, you know, should be able to be provided with a range of simple compensatory strategies, you know, um, particularly in the short term. 
So you know, in healthcare, they use huddles at each work shift where they can adjust roles and priorities to best adapt to the immediate pressures and concerns. So like a shift start huddle, which is like, okay, what's going on now? Gee, there's only five of us. Okay, we've got 15 patients. How are we going to actually adjust this? What's what's going on for this shift? And that dynamic work organisation that can happen on the front line at a shift level, you know, you, people need the skills to be able to collaborate and and work that out with their team and and also know what kind of the limits of their adaptation, you know, can be um, to maintain, you know, an acceptable standard, even if it's not the, the ideal standard, let alone the aspirational standard. <laughs> Let's move on. Though. So so I'll let you talk to this one, Drew. They, the, the authors, I guess, being good psychologists and safety scientists, uh, sort of put a small section in here on a research and development agenda, which I thought you'd quite like. And so just to yeah, the first the first part they just sort of talk about doing a whole bunch of descriptive studies, you know, in any industry to try to find out what are the common types of pressures, what are the degraded conditions, how are they dealt with by organisations, can we create a taxonomy of these pressures, a bunch of strategies. So, so I guess this, this I, I love this agenda of actually you know describe the problem first. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, often when I'm talking about research, I talk about describing. Just because I love descriptive research, um, Amel Birdie, he's clearly thinking more in problem-solving mode here, but he's almost like fol- following our manifesto to the letter before we wrote the manifesto. So he's basically saying describe first, you know, initially as a descriptive exercise with a view to identifying a set of strategies and then testing out those strategies. So he's saying, you know, don't try to just solve this problem. Don't come up with solutions. Describe what's going on. Describe what people are already doing to adapt. Describe what people are trying. Come up with some strategies that sort of a blend of what people are already doing, things that seem like they might work. Test out those strategies. Um, I love that as a research program that anyone could pick up that approach in any industry, I think, and do a project just with a view to understanding degraded operations in this industry. In fact, one of of my students, um, Angie Galbraith, actually did quite a similar project looking at coal mines in adverse weather. Uh, she was looking particularly at the sort of like big trucks that go on the circuit, looking at just how, you know, adverse weather is one of those things that it's a known unknown or an unknown known. It's something that you know is going to happen. You just don't know when it's going to happen. And so how do people adapt? When do they adjust? How do they decide how to stop? Describe that first and then turn that into strategies and guidance for other people. Yeah, I like I like both the descriptive as well as the the practical nature of what they're suggesting that um, science can contribute. And I guess Drew, then the paper does then after this research agenda talk about this and everything that's been spoken about and sort of said, look, the authors anticipate some resistance to this shift in perspective away from this vision of absolute safety at all times towards this active dynamic management of risk. And so this question is that the researchers say, can we evolve organisations away from absolute safety as the only acceptable goal. Saying we can anticipate some resistance to this shift in perspective is the most polite way of saying, we're going to get hate mail for writing this, aren't we? And I think through, I think through in the context of patient safety in healthcare, to talk about knowing and active compromises and, and trade-offs around, around clinical care, I think they were treading carefully. Yeah, and particularly since they're not just talking about, you know, absolute safety in the sense of zero accidents. So this isn't the zero harm versus not zero harm debate. They're actually saying we can't make the highest standard of care what we're aiming for. We as an organization cannot promise we will always do our best. 
we have to say sometimes we won't, we need some second best options. And we need to actually write into our procedures, write into our management training, what second best looks like. Because having a best and a second best is far better than having a best and then just below that, a gradual slipping of standards that's always aspirational, but never actually coping with the realities of what the situation's like. So Drew, we might just sort of conclude and go to some practical takeaways, um, if you're okay with that. I, I guess in the conclusion of this paper, the authors sort of say, look, most if not all industries are facing many more demands and are more complex than they were, in this case, 10 or 20 years ago. In many countries, this, this quality divide between the expected standards of practice and what's actually currently being delivered and potentially will be you know, unable to be bridged in the foreseeable future. So, of course, and I guess in healthcare, this is still one year before a pandemic. So, and we, of course, need to continue to innovate. We need to improve the system, but this in itself may not be enough. And I guess these authors are sort of their, their core argument is, look, we actually need to take stock. This is where we're at right now. What are the pressures and tensions in our business today? What are the things that we expect to continue to be pressures and tensions for quite some time? And what are our deployable kind of strategies and capabilities to deal with those risks and accept that it's not going to be perfect now or potentially into the future, but we're managing those those important things as opposed to just letting our frontline teams try and figure it out indefinitely. Um, anything you want to conclude before we go to takeaways, Drew? Let's put up some takeaways. Okay. So I'll, I'll kick us off and then I think um, I threw a couple in, you threw a couple in. So... For me, I guess it's just a continuation of that conclusion I just shared that, you know, we need to manage the situation and risks that we're currently facing in our organization. You know, focus our effort there, not focus our effort on promoting the, the ideal rules, the ideal standards for normal operating situations, but, you know, actually just understand and support your business to deal with the situation that they're currently in. Second one is recognize that all operations involve constant tensions and trade-offs. And we need to train people how to think about that at different levels. So Amal Birdie sort of spelt out in this paper, like this is how you need to treat it at the executive level. This is how you need to think about it middle management. This is how you need to consider it at frontline management. And so actually equipping people both with the understanding that trade-offs are real and with some language and some strategies for how do you respond when you need to make those trade-offs. So, so I think that's good. And, and I guess, yeah, like I said, understanding, follow on from that point there, Drew, understand how work is adapting in response to these pressures and challenges. Uh, I guess David Wood says, you know, that particularly safety professionals need to be obsessed with, you know, understanding adaptation. You know, how, how are those pressures and challenges actually being faced by teams in the organization? And what are the short and the long term risks and limits of the system as a result? You know, what are those adaptations that you accept? For a short period? What are those adaptations you accept for a long period? What are those adaptations that you need to undermine and, and need to figure out how to, how to, I don't want to use the word correct, but how to adjust again into some sort of acceptable uh, limit? Yep. And where possible, we want to codify this and make it explicit in the same way that we do for other safety standards. So, you know, we, we can't do this for everything, but for the things that we can predict, the hazards that we can expect, the conditions that we know will come inevitably, we need to define what second best looks like. When we're running short on time, what can we stop doing? What standards can we allow to slip? And which are the ones that need to be precise, enforced, meet the ideal, even under the bad conditions? Andrew, I'll let you continue with the, with the research takeaway as well. 
Oh, so, so yeah, let's have a takeaway for researchers. We do need research into the strategies that organizations use under these sorts of expected but unpredictable stresses. Great opportunity for anyone who wants to do a project into degraded operations. Both what do degraded operations look like in this industry? And then what strategies do people use? What works well? What doesn't work well? What can we put forward tentatively to suggest to improve handling these known unknowns, these certain uncertainties? Yeah, I like that. True. I think it's um I think that would be very, very fun and useful research to sort of go in with this position that systems aren't perfect, uh, risk is not absolutely eliminated, and how are teams kind of coping with the pressures and tensions that are on them? And can we make their lives a bit better with some sort of like well-researched, deployable strategies. David, I was about to say now is a great time to do that research, but I think we've made the point that any time is a great time to do that research. And I think, yes, yes, the times might be getting better and better into the future as well as things become more and more complex and more and more degraded, which is a bit of a cynical position, so I apologise for that. So, Drew, the question we asked this week was, what's the right strategy when we can't manage safety as well as we'd like to? Well, Amalberti gives us a wrong answer and a few tentative right answers. He says the wrong answer is to just either insist on the high standard and blame the frontline workers when they can maintain it, or to trust too much in just letting people adapt. He's given us a few suggestions, though, for how we can put in place more planned adaptation based on an understanding of what we're likely to face and how the organisation needs to adapt at different levels to manage the trade-off. Great. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 